everyone, welcome to another exciting, scintillating, and fascinating episode of the OIG Roundtable. We're all here today. The band is back. Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent charge from OIG's LA field office, and now a member of manager on our SIU investigative team, Jason Eisengrind, retired executive from HHS OIG, retired from the Northeast UPIC, and now our special director in charge and special projects and his counterpart, Matt Kachansky, also one of our managers on our SIU team, our senior manager, retired executive from HHS OIG, and Jason's counterpart from the UPIC as the Northeast UPIC director. And now uh, on, it's like you guys are on chapter three of your life. It's, you know, it's like <laughs> enough for it, which is amazing for guys that are only 30 years old. I find that fascinating. It seems more like the epilogue, but that's all right. <laughs> that is true. It's like the back of the page. And I am Eric Rubenstein, Senior Director of Litigation, Fraud, Waste, and Abuse, and a retired senior agent from the uh, New York region and the New Jersey field office. So today we want to talk about policy and we want to talk about medical policy, not necessarily fraud, waste, abuse policy, but talk a little bit uh, from, a, from, a, from a plan perspective. And, and this spills over clearly into CMS policy, because uh, oftentimes plans medical policy. And when we talk about medical policy in the Medicare space, we're talking about NCDs, national coverage decisions, and LCDs, local coverage determinations, and LCAs, local coverage articles. We're not going to be talking about how uh, NCDs have the effect of law, LCDs are quasi-policy or or sub-regulatory guidance, which is talking strictly from a policy perspective. In, in the NCD, LCD world, it's really about what is going to be, what's covered under Medicare. And typically those things are coming through with you know, congressional authorities, which is why NCDs have the effect of law because Congress says, we're going to cover this, we're not going to cover that, or um, some nuanced particular policy that comes out from CMS. And oftentimes on the, uh, on the commercial side, uh, commercial plans will often mirror policies that are similar to NCDs uh, because a lot of commercial plans have a Medicare Advantage line of business. And so under Medicare Advantage rules, you must have um, coverage guidelines that mirror a uh, payment under traditional Medicare. And obviously in the Medicare Advantage world, there could be some enhanced benefits that are not covered, but you've got to have that base. And then you get into the, some of the strictly commercial plans where you know they'll have a lot of policies that are similar. But one thing that was interesting was a particular um, plan um, here in, in the Northeast, the particular plan came out with a policy relative to colonoscopies, uh, routine screenings for colonoscopies. Now, you know, as you guys uh, are aware, uh, there were some recent changes and it is recommended that colonoscopies are started at age 45. It used to be 50, it was reduced to 45 as a screening for colorectal cancer and how it really can save lives. We've all been touched by cancer in one way or another, personally or indirectly. Um, and you know, I know for sure I've had some very direct connections to people who have had colon cancer, have died from it and have uh, lived through it. Um, and so this isn't about whether or not it should or shouldn't be covered at age 45 or not. But what was interesting was that this particular plan came out with a policy regarding the anesthesia portion of it. And if anybody has had a colonoscopy in the past, you know that the procedure itself uh, is not nearly as bad as the prep, right? The prep is now just really more annoying than anything else. Um, but, you know, obviously going in and having it done 
there's a level of anesthesia that people are given. Some people are put under general anesthesia. Some people are given twilight or what they call MAC monitored anesthesia care. Um, and But this particular plan came out with a policy that said, unless the patient has some complicating factor that requires uh, a higher level of anesthesia or a fear of surgery, that uh, the plan was not going to routinely pay for a higher level of anesthesia, which to some extent is right, the individual medical decision-making of the healthcare provider and the patient. So, you know, Wade, I wanna start with you on this because from a, from a uh, SIU investigative fraud waste abuse perspective, um, you know, the creation of a medical policy that may be um, divergent from what was standard before creates some inherent fraud waste abuse issues, right? From a documentation perspective, from you know collateral care perspectives and, and things of that sort. And I think one of the things that you know oftentimes investigators get concerned about is this um, premise that they need to know every policy, every rule, every billing and coding um, nuance that's out there. And outside of the fact that that's what research is for, right? We get something, we don't know about it, we do homework. The fact is, is that when a plan comes out with a policy that is medical directive in nature, it really does have collateral implications on an investigator and the prospect of having to now investigate a fraud waste abuse issue that may not have been one. Yeah, well, we were talking before the call and just the nature of of that change alone where you know people are uncomfortable with having this procedure so they're if they're told you know if the doctor is telling well we can only give you this twilight anesthesiology or anesthesia unless you're unless you tell me you're afraid of surgery or or afraid of the procedure that's going to evoke you know a large percentage of people saying yeah so now we're giving them another diagnosis um, so that they can get a, a more thorough anesthesia. Uh, so that's one change, but it's it's just a matter of, you know, as you said, catching up to the, the updated regulation. It's like kind of a saying in the SIUs that once you get assigned a case, you have to become a subject matter expert in that specific um, instance, whatever the issue is, whatever the procedure is, um, and, and I guess there's different levels of becoming a subject matter expert. It's, I wouldn't really consider just reading a few regulations. You're now a subject matter expert. You have to really know it inside and out. So there's going to have to be more than just reading the regulations. There's going to have to be a lot more research to it than that. You know, one of the things that came to mind when we were, you know, looking at this and talking about this is people theoretically, if a doctor wants to continue to give the patient the level of comfort and care that they have had previously, and the anxiety piece of this, right, like fear of surgery equates in my mind to uh, to anxiety, which is a ICD-10. It's a, there's a diagnosis for anxiety. It also becomes, you know, from the psychology piece under the DSM, it's a diagnosis. So now as a you know, if I'm a gastroenterologist and you come in for your colonoscopy and, and now I'm going to be giving you a diagnosis for anxiety, which triggers a whole host of other things that you may not have had. So, you know, Matt, like, you know, in the in the in the Medicare Advantage, in the HMO world, in the HCC world, we have now created 
artificially a diagnosis that a patient may not have previously had in their medical history, which creates all kinds of havoc for risk score adjustment, uh, collateral mental health issues. Does, you know, the person who goes in for a routine colonoscopy and the doctor gives them a diagnosis of fear of surgery or anxiety or what have you, now you've got this collateral issue. Maybe you go for a job where there's a medical release and now, oh my God, this patient now has anxiety and it's untreated anxiety because the fact you have anxiety for surgery, it's a little bit like, you know, a white coat, right? High blood pressure. You go to the doctor and your blood pressure's through the roof, but normally it's very low. You've got these artificial diagnoses coming in and then theoretically, is it an untreated diagnosis, right? And the collateral implications from a policy perspective have very broad reaching perspectives in a lot of other ways. Yeah, the, the the impact on the patient is could be catastrophic. I mean, they go for a job that requires a top secret clearance. There's you have to get the medical clearance, you know, the, and and the employer is going to look at that and say, we can't hire this person because they're going to be under high stress under this with this job, and they're not going to be able to handle it. So we're going to discount this person. To say nothing of the fact of this policy may cause the patient if they don't want that extra diagnosis on their on their on their history and the and the physician is not willing to do it they might put off that colonoscopy because they don't want to go through the discomfort you know for a routine test so they put it off and who knows what the what the implications of that could be for their health so there you know there are untold problems associated probably you know, long-term for, for many of these people that, you know, weren't taken into consideration or weren't taken into enough consideration when the policy was was put into place. And the other one being, you know, if they do wait, maybe they do develop you know, cancer or some other gastro issue that's going to be of higher cost, perhaps even fatal, that could have been caught early if they went through the <clears throat> The colonoscopies when when they needed to go through them and right. and that's going to raise the cost for the insurance as well as you know the the impact on the patient's well-being right so you know the one thing that it also spurred in my mind and jason i want to go to you for this is this this lack of potential integration of conversation between medical direction and payment integrity right so you know, I know you know you're working right now uh, very deeply with some SIUs on process improvement and coming up with standard operating procedures and the like. And the thing that kind of comes to mind is when there is a lack of coordination of communication between the payment integrity people <clears throat> with the medical director staff. You know, medical direction comes out with this policy. Do they have a conversation or a lack of conversation, as the case may be, with payment integrity to understand what are the collateral implications of this? And I think it gets more to that broader conversation about how SIUs need to have the clinical subject matter experts like RN auditors and documentation auditors within that SIU to be able to have that cross-component you know, parts of the discussion. Yes. And you know, to me, when you're trying to operationalize the new rules from up above, 
I think you need to have an honest conversation, or I would say more like a very detailed conversation with those that have this um, concept in their mind. Because how do you prove that situation that someone has fear of surgery? First off, uh, okay, I'd like to meet the person that doesn't have fear of surgery. I, you know, it's probably a unique person that, you know, is so stalwart in their emotion control that they, they don't go in with some sort of anxiety. And uh, so what are the factors that need to be established to prove that? Like you've mentioned before about LCDs and that, that's a, uh, that those are the guidelines that you know, are followed by medical review. And I would say that this also, again, um, I guess reinforces, let's say that there is a place to enforce that that uh, rule, is that there there is a serious uh, need for medical review because establishing, you know, what the record shows that that allowed the service to be covered is going to be key in making that um, that decision and then that decision be um, held up through, you know, whatever due process is applied. So one thing that I'd be curious is I'd love to know when this blue came out with this policy, this this particular blue plan, I'd be curious to know empirically what percentage of their covered lives were getting general anesthesia versus conscious sedation. And I think for anybody who's had a colonoscopy, generally speaking, you're getting propofil, right? Put you out for 10 or 15 minutes, you get colonoscopy, you go. So there's going to be a percentage of people who obviously that wasn't the thing for, but, you know, it, it made me think as we're talking about this is if you've got that fear of surgery, if anybody's actually had surgery with general anesthesia, in many instances, before they even will you into the room, you get a little bit of relaxing medicine, right? A lot of times you're getting something, you, you'll get like Dilaudid or you'll get uh, Versid, I think is a, a pretty common one, which kind of, you know, makes you a little loopy if you've ever had surgery. You know, they give you that to kind of mellow you out. And then by the time you go into the operating room, you know, I have, I've had surgery. I think most people have had some sort of surgery where you get that and you're just in the happiest place you could possibly be. Um, and so it makes me think like collaterally, if, my diagnosis is going to be a fear of surgery or some other issue that requires me to get this general anesthesia. Am I collaterally also getting these other medicines, right? Um, and then if they're giving me the propofil because my doctor says, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not giving you this general anesthesia, are, is the doctor going to then have an anesthesiologist give you the versed or the lauded or whatever it may be that they're giving you to kind of to kind of mail you out? So there's going to be a bunch of things, I think, that that fall, you know, collaterally on this. You know, the one thing that it, it gave me a little bit of a thought on it. And Jason, I want to go to you on this because this really does become policy and, and process improvement is it made me think in terms of in the dermatology sense, you go to the doctor for a skin tag. And skin tags are not covered by insurance. It's a cosmetic removal. You know, we're not talking about a cyst or something like that. And I know of instances where people would go, they get skin tags removed. And what the doctor does is the doctor sends it out for pathology to rule out that it was a, you know, a melanoma or a cancer or a tumor or something like that. And I think of that in the same sense. You know, a doctor playing defensive medicine or creating a justification in the documentation for something that may not have been there and those collateral consequences. So Jason, as, as we kind of wrap up, I want to go to you for this last thought is how do you 
you know, when you're thinking about this from the payment integrity perspective, how do you get the how do you get this buy in or how do you work to get buy in from the medical directors team? Or, you know, how do you get people in? I guess the question really is, how do you get these people in a room to understand that? Medical directives that come out have really strong implications from the fraud waste abuse perspective. How do you get people on one side of the table to sit in the room with people on the other side of the table? Well, I think that's right up front. That's part of uh, the due diligence of operationalizing any sort of new thing that you're trying to enforce through the SIU is determining what exactly needs to be established to prove it, as I said earlier. And that would be, um, you know, certainly on the side of medical review, speaking with the medical director to get that concept. I mean, as far, and, and you've all said this uh, already, but it goes without saying, I mean, it kind of just really drives a behavior that is not one that you want to encourage in those that are documenting medical procedures on the provider end, right? Like, so, you know, I haven't had a couple of skin tags removed, you know, questions come in, well, is it presenting a problem for you? And you think about it for a minute, like, and you say, well, you know, actually when I wear a collared shirt, which not, you know, doesn't happen in this group very often, but when you're wearing a collared shirt, it's it's causing an irritation. It's like aha, and you can see the pen moving, and it, and that probably is legitimate. But my point is just that it it starts a a behavior potentially that's just not really what you're looking for in the in in medical um, documentation. So. Uh, yeah, it's about setting the expectations with the provider community. I would say that, uh, you know, I as an SIU director, I would push back on the team that came up with that idea, assuming it came, you know, from outside of the SIU and say, OK, well, let's send out an education letter to our uh, providers, because I am sure that they would get a ration of feedback from from the provider community about that. And it's better to flesh it out at that front end rather than spend a whole bunch of resources and then find out later, well, you're not able to substantiate any of the allegations because, it, again, it's about what you can prove. It's not what is written down by someone or that you know. It, it, you know, there needs to be um, supportable evidence, uh, you know, to to have that recovery sustained. I go back to a conversation we had with Dale Carr when he talked about getting everybody in the room at the same time to talk about these types of changes and, and integrating the SIU with the other parts of the plan, including the policymakers. And he said one of the things that he does is he tries to show them that if this policy is meant to cut costs, let's take a look at that. You know, this is cutting these costs, but here's some additional costs that you might want to take into consideration that are going to be raised because of the policies that you're that you are implementing to include the cost of Xanax, the cost to of adding that, you know, the extra the extra anesthesia when it's needed and and the right. and the implications of a of a behavioral health diagnosis on the patient and how that's going to raise the cost to that patient and to the plan for covering that patient and taking it all into consideration rather than the short term, very narrowly focused who were cutting the cost of the anesthesia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an important piece. I, I, I'm always curious 
when a policy comes out, what sort of empirical analysis was done behind it, not just the medical decision piece, right? Like we know on the Medicare side, they have these uh, the committees, the, C the CACs, right, which is the clinical committee, and it's the medical directors of all the MACs get together and they and they do all that. But I am curious, like for example, was the for this particular blue was the percentage of members who who required we'll put that in air quotes, but who who needed or who got a higher level of anesthesia, was it so great that it made someone say, hey, why are we incurring this cost when MAC or the Twilight, the propofil is this? I'd be curious to know empirically, you know, what that percentage is. But then I would also be curious empirically in if those people, if that percentage was X and those people then got a diagnosis of anxiety or something, what would the potential collateral costs be? Because now they have that additional diagnosis. So, you know, what would the, you know, how would that trigger from a, like, that's an actuarial study that somebody should, should be doing to determine if 10% of the population of our, mem if 10% of our membership required general anesthesia, and if that 10% continued with this additional diagnosis, what would be the potential costs incurred by the plan for that additional for those additional services? So, yeah, it is interesting. I think we're going to see there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on right now on LinkedIn and social media about it. A lot of people are are talking about it. It's raising a bit of a of a stink. Um, who knows if it's going to get clawed back? I mean, as we saw with some other payers, uh, particularly, you know, there were a couple of payers who had put in some policies regarding modifier 25. And the fact that all, every single one of those claims were going to be audited and reviewed in hard copy and faxing in your documents and things. And I know we've talked about that previously, that those policies were clawed back as a result of some uh, verbal backlash. So we'll keep an eye on this and, and see what happens. It's, it's going to be interesting. Um, as always, it's great getting your individual perspectives on these things. Again, thanks, everybody, for tuning into this week's OIG Roundtable. Uh, if you are not getting our newsletter, as I always say, feel free to drop us a line at hello at advise, A-D-V-I-Z-E, health.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter right from our website, which is advisehealth.com. Uh, we've got a LinkedIn Live coming up. I believe it's next week. We're going to be talking about the 2024 E&M changes uh, with our very own uh, documentation expert, David Bolden. Uh, he'll be talking about the 2024 changes and the implications for providers on that. So uh, we appreciate that. Our uh, RN or our nursing boot camp started last night. We have a full house of people. That's uh, that's a great thing. So we're in the middle of helping to train a whole bunch of clinical people in looking to make some career changes to become auditors. Um, so if you are interested in any of our future iterations of that course, again, hello at advise.advizehealth.com. You can catch us on that. So as always, it's good seeing you guys. We'll see you on the next OIG roundtable. Thank you all. Thank you.